0: Mark chapter 6, and we're going to be looking this morning at verses 30 through to 44. So let me read that for us. The apostles returned to Jesus and told them all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Let's pray. Father, by your spirit now, take your word and accomplish your purposes. Convict, rebuke, encourage, edify, strengthen Have your way among us here this morning. May we see Christ more clearly. May we marvel at him more, all the more deeply, and love him all the more. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in much of life, we discover that there are often layers of truths to be discovered, that not everything as it is on its surface or that not everything is as it is on its surface. That as you peel away one layer, there's another layer to be, be discovered and peeled away. And that's often the case when it comes to the miracles of Jesus. At first glance, we could say that Jesus' miracles simply are there to display his power. Every miracle of Jesus reveals his power, But if we look deeper into the meaning of those miracles, there is often a deeper meaning to be found. Something more than just merely a display of his power. And I think we see this here in this passage in the feeding of the 5,000. At first glance, we see Jesus, by his power, multiply the bread and the fish. But there's more going on here. That we're going to see there's more that mark who writes this gospel wants us to see than merely jesus's power so the first thing that i want us to see from this passage this morning is that jesus is the compassionate shepherd he is the compassionate shepherd look at verse 30 to 34 the apostles returned to jesus and told him all that they had done and taught and he said to them come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while for many were coming and going, they had le- and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat into a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. So the apostles, they, they returned from their short-term missions trip, so to speak. Jesus had commissioned them in, in verses 7 to 13 of chapter 6. And they return and tell Jesus all that they had done and taught. And just like Jesus, they too were experiencing the demands of ministry. So much so that, that we're told that they actually had no leisure even to eat. And so Jesus tells them to depart to a desolate place and to rest there for a while. So they get into a boat and and they journey to this location. We're not specifically sure what the location was. All we know is that it was a desolate place. And I want to, to briefly draw your attention to the repeated term, a desolate place. Mark continues to emphasize that it was a desolate place that they departed to. It actually comes up again in verse 35, when, when the disciples tell Jesus to send the people away to fend for themselves. The setting of this desolate place is going to be important for us to understand what Mark wants us to see about Jesus. So remember this desolate place. We'll get there. So they go away. But there were many who saw them and recognized them. So all these people from the towns, they were so wanting to see Jesus and his disciples that they actually ran on foot to get to the place that Jesus had intended for his disciples to rest. And they actually end up getting there before Jesus and his disciples. Now despite the fact that the disciples and Jesus are tired, despite the fact that their goal was to depart and rest, when Jesus sees the crowd, he's not filled with frustration. But rather, he's moved with a deep sense of compassion. As, he said, as we read in verse 34, When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them. He had compassion on them. Why? Because they were sheep without a shepherd. They were wandering helpless unguided sheep. And it led Jesus to feel in his belly a deep compassion for all who were there. Now, in this passage, how does Jesus immediately display his compassion? What does he do? We're told that he began to teach them many things. Isn't that interesting? I don't think that many tend to think that teaching is an overflow of compassion. But that's precisely what's conveyed here. Jesus has compassion on these lost, wandering sheep, and so he begins to teach them many things. What he taught them, we're not sure, but I'm guessing it had to do with who he was and what the kingdom of God was all about. You see, he is a shepherd of the lost sheep, and his first prerogative towards them is to teach them. He is to teach them, because that's fundamentally the role of a shepherd. The shepherds, the metaphor of the shepherds in the Old Testament, which represented the kings and civic rulers and even sometimes religious leaders, they were to lead and guide the people according to God's revealed will. And the reason why in the Old Testament, why many of them didn't, was because one, they did not love God or fear him, and two, they lacked compassion for God's people. And that's precisely why God says in the Old Testament that he's going to raise up an individual shepherd who will compassionately love, care, and lead the sheep of God, as we're going to see in just a little while. See, this is why preaching, teaching, is an act or ought to be an act of compassion. Pastors and preachers ought to be driven by compassion for the sheep God has entrusted to their care, just as the chief shepherd compassionately cares for his sheep and does that primarily through teaching them many things about his kingdom. The shepherd metaphor is used throughout the Old Testament. And as I already shared, it's meant to capture God's care for his people, but also the care that the leaders of Israel were to have for Israel. The kings of Israel and the religious leaders were were called to shepherd and care for the people of God. And this is why there are places in the Old Testament where, where God speaks scathing words to the shepherds who had neglected their task in caring for Israel. You see this phrase sheep without a shepherd is actually used in the Old Testament specifically in Numbers 27 verse 17. God tells Moses that he's he's not going to enter the promised land because of his sin when he struck the rock. And Moses in response asks God to raise up a shepherd to lead the people This is what we read in Numbers 27, verses 16 to 17. Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. Now Joshua, of course, is the direct fulfillment of this request, He is the one who replaces Moses to lead the people of Israel into the promised land. But Mark picks up this idea and demonstrates that Jesus is the true shepherd of the sheep. That where Moses failed and even Joshua failed, Jesus will not. Moses did not bring the people into the promised land. He did not give them eternal rest. Joshua did not give his people the eternal rest. Only Christ is the one who gives his people eternal rest. He's the one who will bring his people into the wilderness and bring them true everlasting rest. Also in Ezekiel 34, and I alluded to this before about this chief shepherd, we see a similar idea. Ezekiel 34, 1-5 reveals that, that Israel has no shepherd for the shepherds, for the shepherds of Israel have been feeding themselves while the sheep have been neglected. And what's God's response to this? Well, he's going to judge these corrupt shepherds. But he also says he's going to shepherd his own sheep. But then he makes this incredible promise in verse 23, where he says this, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. My servant David is this shepherd, but David's dead when this is written. See, we understand that Jesus is the greater David. This is referring to David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as Jesus is the greater Moses and the greater Joshua, he is the greater David. He is this one shepherd, this one individual shepherd who will be raised up by God, who will feed his sheep. So not only is Mark conveying that, that Jesus is the greater Moses, by miraculously feeding this crowd in this desolate place, he's also showing that Jesus is the shepherd king, the one whom God promised to raise up to lead his Sheep to greener pastures. He is the shepherd of shepherds, just as he is the Lord of lords and King of kings. And as the great shepherd, he will have compassion and care for his sheep. So Jesus looks on the crowd as the great shepherd, and he has compassion on them, and he he begins to teach them. But Jesus' compassion doesn't merely end with teaching, nor even with the providing of food. You see, what separates Jesus as the compassionate shepherd is that he's willing to lay down his life for the sheep. As John 10 verse 11 says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This is the compassion that Jesus has for broken, sinful, needy humans. This is what separates Jesus from all the shepherds in the Old Testament. He is the only one who lays down his life for the sheep. He lays down his life for unclean sheep like you and I. Friend, you will never, you will never encounter a human with the compassion that Jesus felt and displayed for sinful people. His mercy, his love, and his grace is a never-ending fountain that will never dry up, never be stopped. But you must come to him as a sheep, like this crowd who, who saw him and they flocked to him. You must come to him as a sheep, believing that he's the great shepherd who can actually care for you and feed you. He gave his life for helpless, broken, sinful, unclean sheep like you and me. So Jesus is the compassionate shepherd that we see here in this passage. Secondly, Jesus is the bread provider. The bread provider. Look at verses 35 through to the end. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. The disciples express concern to Jesus that the people need to be sent away in order to get food, for for the place they were in was a desolate place. See, the desolate place is repeated again. But surprisingly, Jesus says to the disciples, you give them something to eat. Now, this wasn't a mere suggestion on Jesus' part. This, This statement is imperative. It's a command. He's commanding them to give them something to eat. And the disciples, I think, actually respond to this in frustration. Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? In other words, who here has that kind of money, Jesus? They think what Jesus is telling them to do is just straight up outlandish. And in one sense, from a human perspective, it is. I mean, there's over 5,000 men here, and that's not even including the women and the children that are present. And so Jesus asked them how much food they have, and he sends them to go and find out. And they come back and informed him that there was five loaves and two fish, which isn't even enough to feed the 12 disciples, let alone over 5,000 people. Unless, of course... The one who created the universe out of nothing was in your midst. And so Jesus then commanded that everyone sit down in in groups on the green grass. And and they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties, which is very possibly an allusion to Moses and having the people of Israel broken into groups of hundreds and fifties, according to Exodus 18. Once again, we see that Mark is alluding to Jesus being the greater Moses. So Jesus has them to sit down in these groups and then he takes the five loaves and the two fish and what we have here in one sense is he he acts as a priest as he does this very act of looking up into heaven saying a blessing he breaks the loaves he gives them to the disciples and then the disciples set them before the people he divides the bread and the fish among them all He is acting as the priest of God looking up to heaven proclaiming a blessing, breaking the bread, and multiplying the food. And of course, in verse 42 and 43, we see the miracle. This incredible miracle where we read, And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. So by the miraculous power of Jesus... Those five loaves and those two fish, they multiply. We don't know how. We don't know what it looked like. But 5,000 men, not including women and children, ate. And not just ate, but they were satisfied. And there was abundance of food left over, 12 baskets full. And where does all of this take place? In a desolate Place in the wilderness, so to speak, just like Moses in the wilderness. Despite this wilderness, this will not prevent Jesus from providing bread, just like God provided bread for Israel in the wilderness. Bread from heaven. And it's interesting that. Mark mentions the fact that the people sat down in groups on the green grass. Why does he draw our attention to green grass? Well, one, because there was green grass, but but what's the point of highlighting that? He could have just said they sat down and ate, but he says they sat down on the green grass. Well, it's interesting, when you read through the Old Testament, one of the signs that God is in the midst of his people and is blessing them, is that though they are in the wilderness, there is a transformation of the desert into a place of refreshment and life. The desert becomes like the Garden of Eden, precisely because God is in the midst of his people. You see this, for example, in in the story of, of Balaam's donkey, Balak, the the king of Moab, calls for Balaam to curse Israel as they travel through the wilderness, as, as, of course, Israel is a threat to Moab. And every time Balaam seeks to curse Israel, he ends up pronouncing blessing over Israel because God has intervened. But what's fascinating is that in this third oracle where he attempts to curse Israel, as they're in the wilderness, he actually pronounces a blessing upon them and he describes Israel as if they are in this beautiful, flourishing garden, when in reality, they're in the desert. This is what we read in Numbers 24, 5 to 7. This is what Balaam says about Israel as they are traveling through the wilderness. Okay, this is desert land, but this is what he sees. This is what he blesses Israel with. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your encampments, O Israel, like palm groves that stretch afar, like gardens beside a river, like aloes that the Lord has planted, like cedar trees beside the waters. Water shall flow from his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters. His king shall be higher than Agog, and his kingdom shall be exalted. It's as though Israel has become Eden. Because God is in the midst of them. God takes a wilderness people and when the nations see them, they see a people flourishing with life and greenery and water. You see, we see this same imagery in Ezekiel 34. Just after God speaks about this shepherd that we looked at who will feed the sheep, this shepherd that he's going to raise up, He then describes the abundant pastures that they will experience in the wilderness. He says this in verse 25 of 27 of Ezekiel 34. I will make with them a covenant of peace and banish wild beasts from the land so that they may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And I will make them in the places all around my hill a blessing. And I will send down the showers in their season. They shall be showers of blessing. And the trees of the fields shall yield their fruit. And the earth shall yield its increase. And they shall be secure in their land. And they shall know that I am the Lord when I break the bars of their yoke and deliver them from the hand of those who enslave them. See, doesn't all this remind you of Psalm 23 that we read at the beginning? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So Jesus, in the the midst of this desolate place, he sits them on the grass and provides them bread for nourishment. And they are satisfied because of it. See, church, the God who created all things out of nothing is more than able to provide and satisfy you in the midst of the wilderness. But you know what? Jesus didn't primarily come to give you bread, he primarily came to be bread in your life. He did not come primarily to give you bread. He came primarily to be bread in your life. Most theologians argue that this story here is a prophetic prefigurement of the Eucharist, the the Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper, The bread representing Jesus' own body that he will then give to the world. This story is, in a sense, a foreshadow. Just as the manna in the wilderness was a foreshadow to Jesus being the bread of heaven, so this is a foreshadow to what Jesus is going to do with his own body. His body will be the bread that brings life to fallen humanity. And there's two reasons I think that this is pointing forward to that. One... The words used here by Jesus are so similar to the words at the Last Supper as he establishes the new covenant. In Mark fourteen twenty two, we read this. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them, that is the disciples, and said, take, this is my body. In other words, the, the multiplication of the bread was to point forward to Jesus giving his body for the world through his death on the cross. His body is the true bread of heaven that his people will feed off of and find satisfying life in him. And this leads to the second reason for why I think this story seems to point forward to the Lord's Supper. In John 6, you have the retelling of this story as well, the the feeding of the 5,000 But in John 6, Jesus actually gives a theological interpretation of the bread. He gives an explanation of what he's trying to convey to the people who ate the bread that were with him there in the wilderness. He teaches what the breaking of the bread and the multiplication of the bread really actually means. In John 6, 25 to 29, the crowds are seeking Jesus. But but the reason they're seeking him is because they ate their fill of the loaves. That's exactly what he says to them. And he tells them, don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which he will give them. And this is what we, we, we read beginning in verse 30 of John chapter 6. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God, hear this, What is the bread of God? The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And then down to verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me, That came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. You see, we need bread to survive physically. But Jesus speaks to a different kind of bread that we need in order to live and never die. He is the bread of life. And he gives of himself to any and to all who will but feed on him as the true bread of heaven. He did not come just to give you bread, he came to be bread in your life. As he graciously multiplies the loaves of bread for the people, so he graciously gives eternal life abundantly by giving his flesh for the world. As he is slain on the cross where he dies for the sins of the world and through him by repentance and faith, by coming to him and feasting upon him, we receive abundant life. And isn't it interesting that Mark records for us that everyone was satisfied. But also there were 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. Why does Mark record that? When you read Jesus' miracles, you discover that Jesus always specifically addresses a need and meets that need exactly. So a man has a demon, Jesus casts out the demon. A man has a withered hand, he heals the hand. A woman has etern- internal bleeding, he heals the bleeding. But here he does more than just meet the specific need. There's an abundance of food left over. And I think that this is meant to capture that not only does Jesus meet our needs, but his intention is to give us the abundance of life. This is exactly what Jesus says in John 10, 7-11, where he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep See, Christian, you can actually experience the abundant life life, even if you're living in a desolate place. Because the abundant life isn't about wealth or riches. It's not about having a nice home or a lot of money or an incredible job or an incredible education. No, no. The abundant life is one that feeds upon Jesus. As Thomas Thomas Wynandi states, for to be the Savior is not simply to bring freedom from evil, but also to generate an abundance of life. To be in communion with him is to partake of the abundant and enduring life that is God's kingdom. And so the question I leave with you this morning is this. Not what are you believing in, I think everyone in this room would acknowledge that they are believing in Jesus in some form. The question I have for you is this, but who are you feeding on? If you will but feed upon Jesus, you will know not only freedom of the forgiveness of sins, but the abundance of life that Jesus gives to all who seek to find their satisfaction in him as the true bread of life. I pray that that would be our aim as people of Royal York Baptist Church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we ask that by your spirit, you would give us a hunger and a thirst for Jesus. The true bread of life, the true living water. There is nowhere else to turn to truly find satisfaction. Only in him can we know what the abundance of life is all about. And so, Lord, may we as a church be known as a people who hunger and thirst for the bread of life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.